2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul writes, and he says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, speaking of our bodies, were dissolved, that we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle, this tent, do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that has wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also has given unto us the earnest or the down payment of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and rather willing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, or this is why, we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him or well-pleasing in his sight. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend or advertise not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may have something to answer them that glory in appearance, but not in heart. For whether we are beside ourselves or out of our mind, it is to God, or whether we are sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. One of the things in life that interests me more and more the older I get is what exactly it is that drives people. Have you ever been around someone who's just extremely driven in the thing that they do or the thing that they live for? There's something very intriguing about that when we see it. Now, any time that a person has a drive or they're driven, there's always a purpose. There's something that they're driven towards. And with that purpose, there's also coupled with it a motivation. There's something that they want that's in it. Uh, And so there'll be a desire or an impulse or something that has inspired or empowered the desire that creates a drive in a person It makes them want to reach their goal. As we look in this year that is an election year, we see many people that have a drive. They're driven to attain something. There's a purpose. And in that purpose, there's a desire. There's something that they want. There's a motivation. Sometimes the motivation behind a drive is good and it has good intentions. They want to do good or be good or accomplish something good. And sometimes those motives are purely selfish or bad. They're wicked. 
behind it. And so we understand it. We see people, and we see people that are driven, and from time to time we even get to see the motives or the reasons behind that drive. Now let me ask you this. What drives you? In your life, in what you do, in the purpose that you have, and the motivation behind the purpose that you have, what is it that drives you in it or that keeps you going? Now, I've found this in my own life and in observing others, that for a drive to exist and to carry on, there are four ingredients that are absolutely essential. First of all, for a person to be driven, there has to be a vision. There has to be something that I see, a goal that is out there somewhere that can be attained. And I can see what it is clearly, and I have a vision as to what I need to do in order to get there. If I don't have a vision, it's impossible for me to be driven because I have no purpose. I'm going absolutely nowhere. So you must have a vision. You must also have, number two, if you want to be driven, you must also have hope. And that is a hope that it is possible to accomplish your goal. And that is that if you cannot or if you come to a point where you realize that I'm chasing the wind and that it is absolutely impossible that this dream or this vision would ever be accomplished and I lose hope, then I lose power to complete what it is that I've set forth to do. So a vision must also be accompanied by hope that the goal will be met. Number three, the third ingredient in a driven life is that there has to be courage. And the reason there has to be courage is because anything worth attaining, anything that you're driven to, uh, to, to, to grab a hold of in life, is going to be met with resistance and obstacles. And if you don't have courage to overcome those obstacles and to push through the resistance that you get, then you're going to fail in your purpose or become faint-hearted and you'll never see those things realized. Your drive will die. And then number four, the fourth essential ingredient in a driven life is that that person must have strength or energy. If you run out of strength or you run out of energy and you no longer have the ability physically, mentally, or spiritually to continue pursuing the thing that you're driven to do, then the drive will naturally die. And so all four of those things are essential. Vision, hope, courage, and strength or energy to keep going. Now, we've all seen in our lives, whether it be our own personal experience, or whether it be someone else that we're watching, someone who was driven, and then that drive somehow failed. It faded or it died. It might have been a career goal or a personal ambition, some other purpose. But in every instance where someone who was driven and no longer is, one of those four things short-circuited. They lost vision, or they lost hope, or they their courage failed or their strength failed. Something died that caused that drive to also die with it. And what we see in many lives as we, as we watch you know, someone uh, maybe, maybe make their way through their youthful years and, and the energy years and then they mature into adulthood and then they go on into their... And we watch, we just observe maybe someone that we've seen in our life and we watch what happens over the course of their life. They go from someone who is driven that is going somewhere, that has a goal, and that slowly dies throughout their life to the point where they're reduced to the height of their drive being just making it through the day that they're in. If I can, if I can just make it until I lay my head upon the pillow tonight when I go to bed, I'll be happy with that. 
And when they get there to that point where their head hits the pillow, they think, well, if I just, I just can't wait until the morning. I'm, I'll, I'll, I hope I can just make it through until the morning. And that becomes the, the, the epitome of what drives that life, is that everything else has failed and died, and all that's left is just, can I get through the very day that I'm in? What happened in that life? That person died inside. Their drive died. Something went away. Now, one of the most driven people that have ever walked planet Earth would have to be the Apostle Paul. When you look at his life and you look at the things that he accomplished and you look at the way he was, not just in his youthful years or in the days when he first came to Christ, but all the way through until the very end when he died a martyr's death, there was not one day when he ever lost his drive. There wasn't one day that his vision for what his purpose was being upon this earth and what it was for, and he never lost that vision, not for one moment. He never lost hope, not for one day, that that vision could be completely accomplished and that he would be a conqueror and more than a conqueror in accomplishing what it was that he was set forth to do upon this earth. Though his courage at time was challenged, he always rose to the occasion of those challenges, and the Apostle Paul stood courageously on top of every mountain that he had to climb, and he got onto the other side of it, and he kept going, and he was a man of unparalleled strength, who never fainted for one day, but even in his weakness, he was met by supernatural strength, and he was a man who was strong all the way through until the very end. And his drive never died. And it seems like no matter what happened, and no matter where he was at, no matter how dark things were, nothing could kill or quench his drive. And it was puzzling. It was puzzling to those that knew him. It was, it was puzzling to those that had worked alongside of him, those that were the fruit of his ministry, his critics and his enemies. No one could figure out what drove this guy. They looked in and they tried to see, is it money? Is it power? Is it fame? Is it, what is it that makes this man continue and to be the man that he was? And no one could ever figure it out. But what we know is that it was unquenchable, it was unstoppable, and it was without failure at all. And so the question, as we think about that and consider it, is what in the world was it that drove the Apostle Paul? And if that same thing in some way could drive us, might we see from our lives the same kind of fruitfulness and effect that he had in his life? and what God called him to and gave him to. What drove the Apostle Paul? Now, in the context of where we are in chapter 5, following Paul's chain of thought as he brings us through this section of the Scriptures, he's talking about what it means to be a real Christian or an authentic Christian, the real deal. And what he's done as we've gone through these chapters is, first of all, he's shown to them the proof that he was, in fact, the real deal. He did that in chapter 2. Then he went from there to talk about the source of his authenticity in chapter 3. And then from there, the results or the fruit of his authenticity in chapter 4. And now as we come into chapter 5, what he lets us in on, what he shares with us, is what it was that drove him the source of the drive behind what made this man the effective, 
person that he was, the effective Christian that he was. And I believe that God laid it out for us here in Scripture, that we might lay these things aside our own lives, look at our lives through the lens of it, and ask the question, God, is the drive that I have or what drives me something that will last? Will it bring me through? Is it enough? And is there perhaps more for me than what I'm experiencing presently that might make me a more effective person and a more effective Christian? So what drove the Apostle Paul? Four things, as we look at these verse, uh, these 15 verses here before us, that drove Paul. The first, if you're taking notes, is the absolute confidence and assurance of a glorious heaven. He was absolutely confident and absolutely assured that there was a real and glorious heaven that was awaiting him. Notice again in verse 1 what Paul says to this church, these believers. He says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. Now pause right there and let's untie that. What is he talking about? He's talking about physical death. He's talking about laying his body down in the grave. He says he calls it the earthly house of this tabernacle or this tent. And the Bible does that often. As you go through the New Testament, you read that our bodies are frequently likened unto tents. Concerning Jesus himself who came into this world from heaven's glory and he was clothed in human flesh in John's gospel chapter 1, it says that the word, which was Jesus, that he became flesh flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is the word tabernacled or tented. And that is that God put on the frail frame of a human tent, a human body, and he walked this world in one of those things. And that's what our body is. The apostle Paul here calling it a tent. He does it in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Peter says to the church as he writes at the end of his life, he says, for I must soon put off this tabernacle. Speaking of his death, that I will soon depart and go be with God. And so the New Testament often likens these bodies unto tents, temporary dwelling places that house our physical frames for now. And that's what our bodies do. That's what a body does. A body or the physical body that you and I have is nothing more than a medium through which our soul and our spirit, which is the invisible essence of what we are, communicates or interacts in a given realm. And so because we're in earth and that's where we live, we need an earthly medium wherein our soul and spirit can communicate and interact. And that's all our body is. Your body is not you, and you are not your body. That is simply the house that you live in while you're here on this world. But just like a tent is a temporary and not ideal dwelling place, so also these bodies that we have are not ideal, nor are they eternal. Now, how many of you have found that tents are not the best in terms of living? They leak, they're drafty, they're weak, They're subject to the elements. I mean, there's so many things that we could highlight that are weaknesses of our bodies, just like unto tents. And so Paul says, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, that is, if it's cast down, that is, the day will come, then our body will wear out and it will die. 
And he says, we know that if that happens, he says that we have then a second place. He says, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That is that what awaits me on the other side of glory when I finish my race in this world is that there's a body that's been prepared for me that he calls here not a tent, but a building that's been made by God, not with hands, that isn't temporary or frail, but is absolutely eternal and glorious in that it is in heaven. It's been prepared in heaven. Now, Jesus said just prior to his going to heaven and leaving the earth for the final time, John chapter 14, he looked at his disciples on that last meeting that he had with them before he would go to the cross. And he said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. And he said these words. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I am going to prepare a place for you. Now, typically when we picture heaven, we think, well, what kind of mansion will I get? And we think about a house physically. You know, what will it be made of? Will it be brick or wood siding? What do I get? You know, and and all the whole thing. I believe that Jesus, not talking about a house upon which God never in the Bible places any degree of value, a physical house or dwelling place, not a mansion in the context of an earthly house, but the mansion that he's speaking of is the body that awaits us. And you say, well, what kind of body will that be? Well, I don't know, but I do know this. I know that it will be the difference between a tent and a mansion. And that makes me excited when I think about it. And it excited the Apostle Paul. He says, because we know that once we die and we lay down this old bag of bones, this tent in this world, that we have an eternal habitation, a house not made with hands, that is eternal in the heavens. And then he says, because of this, in verse 2, we groan. Now, how many have groaned today sometime? Be honest. At some point today, you groan walking through this world. And Paul's going to give two groanings in this text, in verse 2 and then again in verse 4. He says, for in this we groan, and the first groan, a reason we groan, is because we earnestly desire to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Is that if you've been bought by the blood and heaven has become a reality to you because you know heaven's king, then something inside of you resonates with what's to come and the truth of that reality. And inside we groan because we know that there's something that awaits us that's so much better than what we've got now. And we want, we earnestly desire to be clothed upon with that, to put aside this mortality in this temporary, in this fallen, darkened world and to be in his glorious kingdom and in his light forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And there's something in the heart of the Christian that longs for that day when we hear that call to come home. We think about what it will be like to be with him for eternity and to look at his face and to know even as we're known and to no longer see in shadows or in the glass darkly as we do now, but to see and know face to face and to know as we're known. The day awaits. And in this we groan earnestly desiring for that day to come. If, he says in verse 3, so being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle, and here's the second groan, we do groan being burdened. And so the reason for the second groaning is not the desire to be there, but the desire to not be here. 
That is that we have to deal with the difficulties of this life. And there's a burden that's associated with this fallen world that we're in. There's a groaning in us because we want to be with us, with him. And there's a groaning because we don't want to be here anymore. There's a difficulty associated with our life on earth. At every moment that you and I as Christians, and I'm talking to Christians right now, at every moment that you and I are here in this world, there are two things that are happening simultaneously. And they are connected to these two groanings, the groaning to want to be there and the groaning to not want to be here. Number one is this, is that while we are here, he is preparing a place for us. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? I go to prepare a place for you. And he's preparing that place. He's doing that right now. And at the same time, the other thing that's happening in every one of our lives is that we are being prepared for that place. And so while God is preparing a body for us that's eternal, he's preparing our character and our spirit and perfecting our faith to make us ready for when we'll be in that place. Now, the difficulty of that is that the preparation process as we go through it is painful, isn't it? I mean, the things that God allows us to go through in our lives and the pain associated with those things is heavy. It's difficult at times, if not all the times. And so we groan in those things because we earnestly desire that which is to come. We no longer want to be in the shadows. We wait for that which will be perfect in the day that is to come. Notice that two times in this passage, He says that we do not desire to be found naked. He says that in verse 3. And then at the second half of verse 4, notice what he goes on to say. He says, not for that we would be unclothed. And so he says it again the second time. He says, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up by life. There's a nugget of truth here that we've got to see before we move on. And we've got to do our best to understand. Many people have the question and they say, what happens when a Christian dies? Because there are passages of scripture that talk about the new body or the glorified body not being given to the Christian until the rapture, until all things are done at the end of the age when the rest of those that are are, are still on the earth are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So what happens to a Christian, to our grandparents or our Christian ancestors or someone who dies before that time? What happens to them? Do they go into heaven as disembodied spirits? Well, according to what Paul is saying right here, the answer would be no. He's saying our desire is not that we would be found naked, that we would just be unclothed, uninhabited spirits that are just floating around in heaven waiting for the time that our bodies would come. That's not what's going to happen. That's not it. You say, okay, well, then does that mean that the soul and the spirit will simply go to sleep? Is there such thing as soul sleep? And we just kind of go to our rest like we hear at so many memorial services and funerals. May they enter into their rest, you know, and now they're just sleeping in the ground waiting for that day. No, Paul's going to say in a minute that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And here, he says that death is swallowed up in victory. What kind of victory did Jesus accomplish if that victory puts us in the ground for a couple of hundred years until he comes back? You say, well, then what happens to a Christian when they die? Here's what happens. We are immediately, at that moment, as though we pass through a door, 
glorified and we stand in his presence in our brand new bodies. You say, well, how does that work in terms of sequence and time? If the dead in Christ will rise first at the rapture, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up, then how does that work in the sequence of events? Here's how it works. I'm not going to get too far into this because I'll give you a piece of meat that you won't be able to chew and swallow until tomorrow morning sometime and you won't hear another word of the rest of the study. But here's how it works. Is that time and eternity are not related. Time is something that is singularly and separated completely for this world that we live in. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that verse, you have three things created and originated. Time, in the beginning. Space, God created the heavens. And matter, and the earth. Time, space, matter. All created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Time, as we know it, is a created thing. It, it, it revolves around or involves the rotations of the earth and the revolutions of the earth around the sun. That's what dictates and determines time. Where God is in eternity is outside of this universe. The Bible says that our entire universe spans his hand. Therefore, God is not subject to time and from where he is, his vantage point, he can see the entire parade all at once. It all happens at the same time. And when a person leaves this world in the confines of this existence, they leave it and they go to a singular point that already exists outside of it. And so someone could die at 300 BC and someone could die at 600 AD and they both arrive at the outside point at the same place at the same time. That's why when John sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 13, verse 9, he says that he sees a lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, on the day that God said, let there be light, Jesus had already been crucified in the eyes of eternity. It had already been done. When Enoch spoke, who Enoch, the seventh from Adam, his story given to us in Genesis chapter 5, way back at the beginning. And Jude speaks of Enoch's words, and he says that Enoch said, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. How did Enoch realize and see in present time the coming of the Lord way back at the beginning of creation? Because it's happening outside of time. Jesus said in John somewhere, it'll come up on the screen. <laughs> Jesus said that the day is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and all those who hear it will rise. How could it be coming and also exist at the same time? Because in our world, it's something that's yet future. But from God's vantage point, it's already happening. It's eternal. It's eternity. Do you understand? And so Paul is saying we're not disembodied and it's not soul sleep. We die, we go immediately into the presence of the Lord at that time. I believe, and I could be wrong because I'm not perfect in my understanding of this, but I believe that you and I, if we die, Daniel, who died way before we did, Paul, whose head was lopped off at the guillotine or the sword of Caesar, and the people that are raptured, I believe that we all arrive in heaven at the same moment. Chew on that. Now come back to uh, Paul's drive, because that's the topic of our study, but we've got to deal with the scriptures as we move through them, don't we? 
He says, he goes on in verse five and he says, now he that wrought us for this selfsame thing is God. It's his program. It's his idea. It's his plan. Who also has given unto us the earnest or the down payment of the spirit. Now that word earnest that he uses in the King James, it's where we get the idea of earnest money or a down payment. And anyone who's ever bought something on credit or you maybe went to a garage sale and you saw something that you absolutely had to have and you knew it wouldn't be there if you took the time to go home and get the proper cash. And so you ask the person, can I just give you what I've got right now? I know you want $20 for this typewriter, but all I've got is five. Can I give you five and I'll bring back the rest later if you don't sell it to someone else? That's earnest money or down payment money. And what Paul's saying here is that God has given to us the presence of his Holy Spirit, not with us, not just in the world accompanying, But inside the very bodies that we have right now, the Spirit of God has given us a portion of himself. And that is for us the guarantee or the assurance that these things that we read are real. How many of you can testify of the difference that existed in your life between reading the Bible before you knew Jesus Christ personally and after the fact? I know I can. When I read the Bible, not knowing Jesus, not being born again, not having the Holy Spirit in me, it was like reading a fable. Who in the world would give their life to follow these truths and to do these things? But on the moment I opened my heart and I let Jesus inside and I said, God, I'm a sinner and I need a savior and I'm asking you to come into my life and I want to follow you because you're the way, the truth, and the life. And then I went back to the same Bible that I had been brought up reading and that I had read many times And reading it then, it was a completely different thing. New things took on meaning. Life took on dimension. Purpose was ignited. Fire was birthed and and, and started within the heart. A whole host of things happened. It's the evidence of the Holy Spirit within the life. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit testifies in the life of every Christian is that there is a very real heaven coming. And there's a day coming when we will see him, that we will know him, and that we will be known or know even as we are known. He's given us the earnest of his spirit. We're going to come back to verse 5 a little bit later on in our study because it's important. He says, therefore, and anytime you see there, therefore, you know he's concluding his point or getting to where he's going. He says, therefore, we are always confident. And that word confident means to be encouraged or to have courage. We're always encouraged, knowing that while we are at home in the body that is here and now on this earth, that we are absent from the Lord. You say, what in the world is encouraging about that? I would be encouraged with the second confidence that he gives in verse eight, when he says we're confident and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. But what's encouraging about being absent from the Lord while we are yet in these bodies? Here's what's encouraging, is that we know that we have not even tasted the beginning of the glory that is yet to be revealed in us. And we know that this life is intended to be difficult and hard because it's part of God's purpose in preparing us for what's to come. I was having a conversation about a week ago with one of my kids who was discouraged and I saw it in their face. Since there's five of them, there's no way you can guess which one it was. But I saw discouragement and I pulled aside and I said, you look sad, what's going on? And immediately, as soon as I said, I saw a quivering lip and I saw, and I said, let's go talk. Put, took off my 
dish gloves, giving something away there. A little unmanly, but never, no, it is manly. You do dishes, man. It's good. You should. We do. But we went upstairs, and I began to talk. I said, what's going on? And this child said to me, and they said, I just don't feel close to God. And I thought, man, that is a great, I'm so, I'm, I smiled. I'm so glad that's your problem. And, and they saw my smile, and, and it wasn't a mocking smile or anything like that. And I listened for a minute, and then I said, listen, can I tell you something? And I smiled huge, and I said, me neither. I said, can I tell you that a year ago today, my prayer life with the Lord was so vibrant and so alive and so real, and my fellowship with him was so sweet that I felt like he was that I couldn't be any closer to God than I was. And I said it was the best season of my Christian experience that I've ever had. And it was and it just went, it seemed to go on and on and on. And things that sometimes are difficult spiritually were so incredibly easy. And it just was so amazing and I thought, God, this is so good. I've been waiting this for so long. And I said, but can I tell you something? It's not like that today. And I don't know why. So there's no sin in my life. There's no, uh, nothing that's grieved or quenched his Holy Spirit in the whole thing. But I said, this is what I've learned in my 17 years of walking with him, is that we go through seasons. God said when Noah got off the boat, he said, from now until the time ends, there will always be summer and winter, seed time and harvest, until, until the, the earth ceases to be. And I said, we go through seasons spiritually. And I've learned not to get discouraged when it's not as sweet or as close or as intimate or as whatever as I would hope for it to be. It's just not real in this world. And Paul is saying here that we are confident, we are encouraged that we're still in the tent of this body. That's part of the program while we're here. He's saying, I'm encouraged by that. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. That's part of the reality. We're not in his presence the way we'd want to be. And why? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul would say in another place that why would we call it faith if we can see it? Or why would it be something that's hoped for if we have it? This world is a walk of faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Without faith, it says in Hebrews 11:6, it is impossible to please him. And so we walk by faith in this world, and we're not always going to feel the way we want to feel. Things aren't always going to go as smoothly as we want them to go. We walk by faith and not by sight. But we are confident and, and encouraged also, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He says we're also encouraged because we know with absolute assurance that it is going to happen that we're going to be in him. And therefore, we have absolute confidence in a glorious heaven that is to come. And for the Apostle Paul, the reality of heaven was a greater reality than even the world that he lived in presently. And it was part of the reason that he never lost his drive. He never lost focus of what it was that he was headed for or what awaited him. And he never let for one single day a single thing creep into his life that would cloud his vision of what it was that was coming. He lived for heaven, and it drove him. It drove his life. We know that if our earthly house is dissolved, that we have a building eternal in the heavens, and that we will be present with the Lord. The second thing that we see that drove the Apostle Paul, and it's in verse 9, is 
that he had a sincere desire to please heaven's king. Not only was he absolutely certain that he would end up in heaven one day, and that's a certainty that every one of us should have, by the way. I hope you know that. But he also had a sincere desire to please heaven's king. Notice what he says. He says, wherefore, or this is why we labor, that whether present or absent, whether we're with the Lord in heaven or absent from him while we're here on earth, that we may be accepted of him. Now, that word accepted is a terrible translation. The word is only translated, the word that's used is only translated accepted here. Every other place that it's used, it's translated as acceptable or as well-pleasing most often. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, when Paul was talking about the gift that the Philippians had given and sent, sent for him to take and to, to receive. He said that it's an offering that is well-pleasing in the sight of the Lord. That's the word that he uses. Same word here that's translated acceptable. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21, again, this same word in the original language is used, and he talks about God who will make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what the word means. It means well-pleasing. Paul says we labor that whether being absent from him or present with him, that we might be well-pleasing in his sight. And here's why that's so important. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, the apostle Paul wrote there, and he told the church in Ephesus that we are already accepted in him. You understand that? He says that we are accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus has done for us. It's a byproduct of grace, what we've received through the blood, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He's accepted you and I. If we get the idea for one moment that we have to work or labor to earn his acceptance, we've entered right back into the old covenant and we're on the highway to failure and frustration and burnout and discouragement. The idea that Paul is seeking to convey here is not that we labor for the sake of trying to be accepted by God. We've already been accepted. But rather, that our lives would be well-pleasing in His sight. That we would exist for His pleasure. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. When, when the elders in heaven cast their crowns before God at His throne, and their words at that time are, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor. For you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. And that is that everything that's been created, including you and I, that we exist exclusively to bring God's God pleasure, to, to, to be what is well-pleasing in his eyes. You say, well, that just sounds tyrannical. I exist, a free moral agent, for no other purpose than to make God happy. Can I tell you a secret? If you hear nothing else tonight, hear this. I hope you hear more, but hear this. The Bible teaches that we were made to be indwelt by God, that he wants to live inside of us. Now reason, think. If God lives in you and God is happy, then what does that make you? Happy. The happiest life that you can find or experience and have is to be living to please God. Because if he is pleased, 
then you'll be pleased. His pleasure is our pleasure because he made us to do those things that he made us to do, and we find pleasure in those things that he made us to be and do. Paul said, we labor, and part of what drives me is that I have this deep, internal, ingrained desire to do his will for my life. And when I'm in his will, I'm happy. This is what drove Jesus. He said in John chapter 8, I do always those things which please the Father. That's what drove him. We see it when Jesus was at the well in Samaria, and he met the woman there at that well, that famous encounter. And his disciples had brought back food, and they said, hey, we've got food for you. And Jesus looked at them, having just led a woman from darkness to light. And he said, I have food that you guys know nothing about. He said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And he was so satisfied by doing the will of the Father that he had no need for earthly food that just a few moments earlier he had sent them to go by. There's nothing more pleasing in the life of a person than to be in the will of God for that life. And the Apostle Paul would testify and say, part of what drives me, the reason why I labor like I do, people wonder, they ask, what makes this man tick? This is part of what it is, is that I want to do those things that are well-pleasing in his sight. And I want to hear those words one day that he will look at me and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The third thing that drove the Apostle Paul was the fear, the very real fear, of a wasted life. Notice in verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Now, this is one of those verses that just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand straight up, and it gives me the willies. And it makes me feel like that feeling I had in school when I was sent to the principal's office. Remember that feeling? Or, or you get called into the boss's office, and, you, and they, I want to see you. And you go, and everything goes, oh, no. And you start scanning, what did I do? What didn't I do? What is this? What's going on? How do I prepare? What are they ready for? Now we hear this, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And we go, oh my, what in the world does this mean? Understand that when the Bible talks about the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment of God, that there are different judgments for each person, depending on who they are. Typically, when we read this, we think of the great white throne, the final, the final place of heaven's court where God sits behind the bench with the gavel in his hand and the big black robe, and everything before him is weighed, and he either lifts the scepter and we get into heaven, or he thunders down the gavel and we're condemned forever into hell and eternity, away from God. That's not where you and I will face. That's not what he's talking about here. When he talks about the judgment seat of Christ, the word in the Greek is the bima seat. And the bima seat was the place where performance was evaluated and awards were handed out based upon the performance and the fulfilling of the task. And so if you were an Olympian, the bima seat was the place where you were crowned with the wreath or in an equivocal type of setting. It's a place where a promotion is handed out or a demotion, depending on those types of things. 
And the Bible is clear that you and I as believers, our sin was judged on Jesus Christ. We will not stand before God at the great white throne and be judged there. That judgment that we read about in Revelation 20 is exclusively for the unbeliever who rejected Jesus Christ. Their books will be opened and their judgment will be severe. But for you and I, we will also stand before a judgment seat, but it's a Bema seat. It's a place where God evaluates what we did with the time and the resources and the talents and the gifts and the opportunities that we had, whether we did those things that were pleasing in his sight or whether we lived unto ourselves. And if we did those things that are pleasing, then we will receive a reward. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, gold, silver, and precious stones. But if we waste the opportunities and the resources and the gifts that we have, then the Bible says that we will suffer loss. The soul will be saved. Our eternal salvation is purchased by Christ. But we will suffer loss and be saved yet as by fire. And Paul lived with the reality of this in mind is that what I do with my opportunities and my gifts and what I have here on earth makes a difference in all of eternity. And notice what he says as he goes on in verse 11. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now that terror or fear that he speaks of goes both ways. For the unbeliever, it's a fear of hell. We persuade men because we know the terror of God's judgment, should they refuse Jesus Christ and not get saved, we persuade them because we don't want to see them unnecessarily go through God's judgment. But for the believer, there's a fear as well. Do you know what it is? It's the fear of heaven. You say, the fear of heaven? What in the world is the fear of heaven? The fear of heaven is to stand before God and as your life is evaluated and weighed in the balances for all that you did during your time and with what you had here, and you watch it vaporize because it was wasted completely on selfish living, and it wasn't lived at all to serve his purposes. That's the fear of heaven. And you know what? In that context, fear is a good thing. In some contexts, fear is not. But in that one, it absolutely is. Fear is a powerful motivator when it's in its proper context. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That is, we begin to make good decisions when a part of what drives those decisions is a healthy fear of the consequences. Fear is a personality attribute of the Holy Spirit himself. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, when it lists the seven attributes of God's Holy Spirit, the seventh and final is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And it's something that the Holy Spirit gives to every believer is that there's a healthy fear that exists within us. If we lose a sense of fear, even as believers, then we begin, like Solomon, to sin against our own light. And we begin to live in ways that cause us to lose our reward and forsake the good that we would otherwise have. And so fear is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And Paul kept it before him as a motivator. He had a fear that he could come to the end of his life and realize that he wasted his life, that he didn't use it for what God intended it to be used for, but instead he wasted it on selfish things. And so for us, it would be the great embarrassment of knowing that we neglected such great opportunity in the light of all of heaven. I believe that all of us will experience it to some degree, but hopefully not to a great degree. 
I was struck this week during my devotion time reading about um, Jesus when he healed a particular leper in Mark's gospel. And Jesus gave that leper a command. He healed him. He said, now go and offer and show yourself to the priest, but do not tell a single soul what I've done for you. Now, come on. If you had leprosy and you were cleansed, would you be able to keep that to yourself? I don't know. I don't know if I could. But nevertheless, the command came, didn't it? Jesus said, don't tell a single soul. It says, nevertheless, he went and he published it. So he took out an article, put it on the radio. You know, no, they, they, he didn't do that. But he told everyone what God had done for him. And here was the consequence. It says that because of that, Jesus could no longer walk in the city. But he had to reside in the desert places and the people had to come to him there. And for the first time I saw in that something, I saw that because this man was disobedient in such a small thing as keeping his mouth shut, not being able to keep his mouth shut, it cost God the opportunity to reach a whole city. Jesus could no longer walk in the city, but they had to come outside the city. Now, what I got from it and what amazed me is that Jesus still healed the man. I would have thought, God, we got to let this one go. There's a whole city in there, and I, I can't afford to heal one leper, and it'll cause the whole city. But Jesus said, no, no, one leper's worth it, and we'll get, the, we'll get it done in another way. We'll go the extra mile. But here's my point. Someday that leper is going to stand before God at the Bema Seat Judgment having been saved, having been cleansed. And he's going to realize at that moment that that one little act of disobedience cost God great things in order to reach a city that would have been much easier to reach if Jesus could have just gone into it. And I think we're going to have a similar feeling when we realize parts of our life, things that we did or things that we didn't do, that cost God in a way that he had to do things in another way because of our failure. He did it. He will. He does. And we're still there, and he got the job done, but we suffer shame because we know that what we did caused that. We carry that. We'll have the knowledge of that. Shame. Paul lived in a healthy fear of that shame, and it drove him to want to be in the will of God. Finally, in number four, as we draw close to a close, he says in verse 14, the fourth thing that motivated him, he says, for the love of Christ constrains us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and then rose again. Paul was motivated by the love of Christ. That that constrained, the word constrained means to hold in or hold together or continually give supply. The love of Christ constrains. It keeps me going. You say, well, what does that mean, the love of Christ? Does it mean God's love for Paul? Or does it mean Paul's love for God? Or does it mean God's love through Paul for others? What does he mean? The answer is yes. But in that order specifically. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, it says that we love him because he first loved us. And any love that we have to give to God or to let flow through us to others must start first with the receiving of the love that God has for us. Well, what is that love? He defines it right there. He says, because we thus judge 
that if one died for all, then we're all dead, or all were dead. Meaning this, that you and I were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. That's the condition that we were in and are in apart from Christ. We're lost and without hope and without God in the world. We are dead while we yet live, and there's nothing to us. We're empty. We're dead. But that he died and that he died for all, it means that we were all dead before, but that he died now that he died, he died for all, it says in verse 15. And here's the result of that. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and then rose again. He's saying that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him, because if apart from his death, we would be dead, then all that we are should be forfeited to him. If it wasn't for Jesus dying for you, you and I, we would end up in hell. That's where we'd be for all of eternity. But in that we're saved, the entirety of our life should be yielded over into his hands. Not because we have to, but out of response to the love that motivated his death on our behalf. Love is one of the most powerful motivators or drivers that exist in all the world. I mean, we see that all the time, don't we? What happens when people fall in love? They're motivated or driven to do things that they would never otherwise do. It's what causes people to grow up is that they fall in love and they start doing things that otherwise they wouldn't. And the greatest proof of love is death. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was the demonstration of his love. And when a person receives that love, that love becomes a powerful motivator within their life. I read an article. I actually didn't read the article. I saw the headline today on one of the news um, you know, collections of headlines and things that I cruise down and read through. And the, the headline was this. It said that prostitutes charge $620 an hour for girlfriend experience. 600 and someone is paying. People are paying $620 per hour for someone to pretend that they love them. And people are so desperate and so hungry to be loved that they don't even care if you have to fake it. The price tag is worth it no matter what it is. I'll pay you $600. You just pretend. Give me one hour. You just pretend that you love me. And when a person is actually loved, and they realize that they're loved with the type of perfect love that only comes from God and demonstrated through his son on the cross, that person is motivated and driven in ways that no one else can be motivated and driven in life. And Paul would testify to the Corinthians, and he would say, part of what drives me to be who I am in this new covenant, authentic Christian life, and that makes me the fruitful man that I am, is that I never lose sight for one moment, of the love that Christ has towards me. And it keeps me going. It motivates me in all of this life that we live in. As we close, and, and I wish I could say the musicians can come, but just give me two minutes and then the musicians can come. Because I want to deal with something real important here. You're sitting here tonight. What we've seen and where, where we began 
in our study tonight is I asked you the question, I said, what drives you? If I leave this out, I know it's late, I know, don't worry, I won't make a habit of it, but just hang with me for just a minute. I asked you the question, what drives you tonight at the beginning of our Bible study? And we've seen over the course of it four things that drove the Apostle Paul. Heaven, number one, a desire to please the King of Heaven, number two, the fear of a wasted life, number three, and the unfailing love of Christ, number four. But there's one question on the other side of looking at all of that that still remains. We've got to ask, if we soberly look at this, where in the world do those things come from? Because I can't make myself have a desire for heaven, heaven that's not real to me or that I, that I can't taste and see on a regular basis. I can't make myself want to please the king of heaven if I don't understand, if I'm not motivated or driven to do it. I can't make myself fear a wasted life, although that's the easiest of the four for me. I still can't make myself do it. And I can't make myself know the love of Christ. Those things must come from somewhere else. The drive that drives those things has got to come from somewhere, doesn't it? So where? Where in our own lives can we find the source that will cause these other things to bring forth fruit in our lives? The answer, listen, is in verse 5. If you want to understand this whole passage, you've got to stand on top of verse 5 and look at the whole passage. And notice what it says in verse 5. It says that he that wrought us or formed us or created us or forged us for this very thing is God, which means that it's his intent and will. And what he has done is that he has also given us his Holy Spirit. Do you see that there? The most, and listen, and this is where we close, this is the point that I want to make to you tonight in all of this. The most important thing in every one of our lives is the daily seeking for, asking after, begging God for the filling, the leading, and the companionship of His Holy Spirit within our lives. Because it's out of that that every other thing will flow. And the good news is that he has freely given that to us. And he says that when you ask, I will fill you with my spirit. It says that the first part of that verse, that he that wrought us for the selfsame thing is God. If God made you to be driven and to have a drive that's going to bring forth eternal fruit, then he will give to you what you need in order to see that come to pass. And so I have to ask myself as I let this passage search me, and now the musicians can come. I have to ask myself as I let this passage search me tonight, what is driving my life? What drives me? What makes me get up and go? What makes me do what I do? What makes me keep putting one foot in front of the other? What keeps the fire burning in my life? What is it, honestly? And here's the conclusion that I come to, is that if it is anything other than the reality of heaven, in a desire to please him, in a fear of a wasted life, and the love of Christ, and all of that driven by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at work within me, here's what I know, is that eventually that drive is going to die. If I'm driven by money, if I'm driven by fame, fortune, I'm driven by success, if I'm driven to reaching retirement years in a certain, with a certain, if, if any of those things is what drives my life, then eventually 
that drive is going to fade into a place where I'm living for nothing more than if I can just make it through this day. I'll be happy with that. Because none of those things have any lasting or eternal value. I shared with the men this past Saturday at Men's Discipleship that there are two things that cause dreams to die. Do you know what they are? Number one is if you never attain to that dream. A dream dies if you never attain to it. Did you know that? But number two, sometimes dreams die when we do attain to them. Have you ever reached a goal and once you got there you realized it didn't do for you what you thought it would? Sometimes a dream dies once you reach it. Let me tell you something. If you're driven by something in this life and your drive is something other than just heaven and pleasing heaven's king and the love of Christ in your life right now, you might reach the goal that you've made for yourself. But I can tell you this by the Spirit of God is that when you get there, you'll die because you'll realize that you've given your time and your energy and your life to something that first of all cannot satisfy and second of all cannot last. All that lasts is Jesus and heaven. And anything else dies. So what do I do if my drive is not what it's supposed to be? Number one is I identify what is the drive of my life. And then I lay it at the foot of the cross and I say, God, this is what's moved and motivated me. But today or tonight, I seek to lay that down at your feet. And I would ask that you would give to me a fresh filling with your Holy Spirit. That those things that are important and those things that are a priority and those things that are lasting would be what drive and govern my life. And that I might at the end look back on some of it and that there might be some reflection in some way that the Spirit of God drove my life in a way that somewhat shadows the Apostle Paul or my Savior who is driven in the same exact way. May God give us the clarity to take these words and to take this passage to see our lives in the light of it and that we would become, if we are not, those that are driven with a drive that lasts and bears good fruit. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would take and divide it and search us with it. And even as we read that psalm at the beginning of our study, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, we make that our prayer, that we would have lives that are successful and blessed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your truth. Please write it upon our hearts. And if there be tonight here, Lord, anyone who does not yet know you personally, I pray that that person right now in the quietness of their heart would open their heart up to you, that they might whisper the words, Lord Jesus, I invite you into my heart and into my life. I repent of my sins and I need you to save me and let me live for heaven and not for earth. Be my Savior and my God. God, if there be anyone here that would open their heart to that, I pray that tonight you would move them to do so. And we thank you for this time and the privilege of being called your sons and daughters. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand.